I took whatever job was the next promotion in whatever city. I can remember taking a job one time, not even knowing what city the job was going to be in. Because, uh, I thought, well, you know, I had this rule, no pets, no plants, no boys. And it was, you do the job and you do it 24-7 and you do whatever it takes to get the, the, next, the next job and the next digit on your pay stub and the next fancy title on your business card. And so I went in and took the job and, and they said, oh, by the way, it's in Indianapolis, Indiana. I was like, oh, okay, good. I've heard of that at least. <laughs> so, um, Welcome to Eternal Leadership, a show dedicated to equipping and inspiring leaders to accomplish what God has created in them. I'm Steve Ryder, and that was today's guest, Sandra Crawford Williamson. Now, Sandra has got a beefy resume, having worked at Procter & Gamble, Coca-Cola, Nabisco. She served as VP at Universal Studios, has held numerous C-level positions on her climb up the corporate ladder, and now she's splitting her time between her marketing consulting firm and mentoring working women as the C. COO of Forward, an organization empowering women, which we featured last month with Diane Patterson's interview. We love Diane. We love Forward. And we're very happy with this interview with Sandra. So if you know anyone that's been climbing that ladder, like Sandra, especially if they're a lady, this would be a show to share with them. Here now is how my co-host John Ramstead and I started our conversation with Sandra Crawford-Williamson on this edition of Eternal Leadership. All right, Steve, this morning on Eternal Leadership, we have Sandra Crawford-Williamson, and we met Sandra through a friend of ours and a friend of the podcast, if people have listened to the episode with Diane Patterson. Yep. And Sandra has become Diane's partner in starting forward, but her life story, what she's teaching now and what she's learned and what she has to share is just going to be incredibly powerful. So Sandra, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, guys. Great to be here. Well, we're excited to have you, and as we always do, I'd love to have you start, Sandra, and just share a little bit about your background and and share a little bit of, of your journey so people can get to know you here as we as we uh, as we move forward. Sure. Well, you know, I was raised in South Louisiana, out in the country, uh, by really scrappy, hardworking parents, salt of the earth people who grew up in church and believed that it was all about. You know, raising their kids in the Lord and in the Word. Uh, at the same time, you know, my mom and dad both came from very, very humble beginnings, and everything they have to this very day, they've accomplished and earned through their own blood, sweat, and tears. And, you know, they weren't given a lot of opportunities by others. So it was really everything they did. And so when they had children, I was the firstborn. And uh, we were all girls, so I was the firstborn, and my dad really raised me in a way that focused on work ethic, and, you know, they knew I wouldn't have any, any free rides either. You know, there was no silver spoon to pass on, and no inheritance, and, and any of those things, and so they raised me from a very, very young age in a sort of the school of hard knocks, and, and uh, you know, I was expected to make straight A's, and and I was expected to have these different accomplishments in school. And I can remember, you know, making my first B my junior year of high school in honors physics and, you know, getting punished for that and thinking, wow, okay. But, you know, that upbringing, as I think about it now, it really has, has given me so many opportunities 
to look at life differently. You know, I, I work very hard to please my parents. So, of course, you always have a little baggage there. But, um, you know, they they really instilled in me a very strong work ethic and that you do whatever it takes to get the job done. And also because, you know, they were just salt of the earth people. I, I've really been called many, many times sort of a chameleon that, you know, I can be in a boardroom and blend right in and relate and, and do good things there. And I can be, you know, out on the street on a missionary trip um, sharing the gospel with people who don't have a home or, uh, you know, food. And, and I, and I've realized, I thought everybody ha- had that. Um, but I realized as I've gotten older that that's, a, that's really something special. And I totally got that from my dad. You know, he could hmm. talk to a stranger. Um, so, but growing up sort of the, the dark side of that also is you grow up in an atmosphere where, accomplishments are awarded. And, you know, I, I was told that I was going to go to college and I needed to get a scholarship. And so, um, it was, it was, it was a tough, it was tough, lots of love, lots of love, but very tough upbringing. Um, and so I started working at 14, you know, got a job at the local grocery store that I could walk to and had to be there at four 30 in the morning. Cause the only job they would let me do was grind the ground meat before they opened. And if anybody's ever had that job, oh, wow. It's like it's like the underbelly of the grocery store, but I, I wasn't old enough to interact with customers, so that was a job I got to do. So, you know, I knew that I needed to to save money because my parents, you know, didn't have a lot, and I needed a scholarship. And so, you know, it was it was all about um, you know getting to college and and getting getting there with as much scholarship as I could. So. Uh, you know, I'll spare you the college phase. You know, I, I went off to college and, you know, that was a that was a tough transition. I went to a very small uh, high school, 100 people in my graduating class. And then I got the most scholarship dollars to LSU, which had 80,000 people on campus. Um, and you can imagine that transition. And my parents had raised me so in this little bubble under their thumb that I jokingly say I must have been slow because it took me three days to figure out that they weren't there and didn't know what time I was getting back to the dorm. And so, um, you know, on that fourth day, did your whole life change uh, on that fourth day? My life changed and not, not for the better, because I think I experienced, you know, from like 18 to 20, what most kids experienced from like 14 to 18, you know, figuring out boys and, and, you know, going to my first bar and, you know, de- determining how to really figure out who's a real friend and that sort of thing. So college was hard for me. Uh, you know, I put myself in some bad situations. It was, um, I was not walking with the Lord. I was out trying to figure out who I was, not through my parents' definition. So, you know, when I speak to to parents who have children in high school or college, I say, you know what? You want their hearts to be broken. You want them to have their first beer, get their first speeding ticket, their first traffic accident. You know, someone offer marijuana, all that awful stuff. You want that to happen while they're under your roof. Because if you protect them so much and they don't have those experiences, and the first time they have those experiences is when they're off on their own, that is really, really harmful to them. And I'm a walking example of that. So, uh, you know, it was, it was not fun, but 
it was all about accomplishments and kept on going, got out of college, um, was all set to go to law school in a silly boy breakup. Um, I changed my mind at the last minute and said, you know what, I'm going to go out in the workforce first. But I had missed all the placement opportunities at the placement center. And so I sort of uh, bulldogged my way in. I, d- I decided that I saw Procter & Gamble was going to be on campus, and I decided that's where I was going to work. And I didn't have an appointment, and I went into those four people that were interviewing folks like every 30 minutes when they would turn a person. I'd go in, hi, Sandra Crawford, nice to meet you, right out here if you have a break. And finally at lunchtime, I think they were just tired of seeing me, and one of the guys spent his lunch, and that was my interview. And uh, I wound up being the only person Proctor hired off the campus out of like 100 people. And so I started my you know great career beginning with Procter and Gamble, and you know I was there for a long time, um, over five years, and that's really I, I call it the creme de la creme of consumer packaged goods. I mean, it's it's an amazing it's an amazing place, and then you know Coca Cola, Nabisco, you know I took whatever job was the next promotion in whatever city. I can remember taking a job one time, not even knowing what city the job was going to be in. Because, <laughs> uh, I thought, well, you know, I had this rule: no pets, no plants, no boys. And it was you do the job and you do it 24-7 and you do whatever it takes to get the, the next the next job and the next digit on your pay stub and the next fancy title on your business card. And so I went in and took the job and, and they said, oh, by the way, it's in Indianapolis, Indiana. I was like, oh, OK, good. I've heard of that at least. <laughs> so um, it was an interesting it was a very interesting phase. Uh, you know, I when I got to um, New York with Nabisco, um, you know, I sort of let my guard down a little bit in terms of dating and, and started, you know, branching out. And um, I had two long term boyfriends, both both of which uh, the relationship ended because of my corporate success. One, I can remember one guy saying, hey, you know what, you're going to be my boss one day because we both worked for the same firm and uh, that's not going to work for me. So you need to leave. And I, and I said, well, I don't think so. What don't you go? So obviously we know how that ended. And then uh, another one literally said to me, you know what, um, you just need to go take that VP of marketing and sales job at Universal Studios that they've offered you in Orlando because I'm never going to be Mr. Crawford. And I thought, okay, I will. And I picked up the phone. I called the recruiter right in front of him, and I took the job, and I moved to Orlando and never looked back. So, you know, this sort of phase one, as I call it, was really just about, um, you know, overcoming my humble beginnings. And, you know, I made more money, guys, my first year out of college than my dad did. Uh, And so that was really, I felt a huge sense of responsibility to be successful for them and to you know, give them some monetary things that they couldn't afford and, you know, to start college funds for my three nieces and my nephew. And, uh, you know, it was it was a just a lot of pressure. But I really saw myself as being, um, I don't know, like the the hope of the family (laughs) or something (laughs) crazy, you know. Uh, But that was in my head. That was sort of the, the pressure. And, you know, spiritually, I, I had got in my head. I mean, I knew scripture. I was, you know, had grown up. If the church doors were open, we were there. And I grew up very, very conservatively. We weren't allowed to, you know, cut our hair or wear makeup or pierce our ears and um, couldn't wear braids and, and different sorts of things. Um, and so obviously now I'm, I'm making money and I'm, 
you know, buying my own homes and, you know, fancy luggage and great jewelry and, you know, wonderful handbags. And I think I'm just all that. And, uh, you know, God continued to work. And there were multiple times in this phase where I tried to get back into church, tried to plug in. But let me tell you, there's very few things harder to do than being a professional, corporate, you know, corporately wired, successfully driven woman that's single trying to plug into a church because there's no bucket for you. You know, you're not, it's kind of creepy if you're 28 and go to the singles group, right? Because they're all like in college. And you're not. So you just felt like there was no home for you outside of just the Sunday morning service. Yeah. So you know, there's no bucket. So I'd go late and leave early. So you know, no one tried to like fix me up with their next door neighbor or their third cousin or whatever. And uh, that you know, that was a that was an interesting phase. It was all about accomplishment, and um, you know, I call it the sin of self sufficiency. Because I learned that if you're going to get out and see the world and make things happen for the family, then it's on your shoulders and you have to work hard to do that. And so that was ingrained in me. And so that's that's what drove me. And then, you know, you kind of fast forward. So it's 2001. I'm 34. I've uh, you know, I'm weeks away from finishing my my MBA in global management. I'm running a multinational toy firm with offices in Hong Kong and Germany and New York and have a home in Orlando. And, you know, we made the cover of the Wall Street Journal and all sorts of awards and, you know, all sorts of TV shows. And I'm on QVC selling products because they wanted me to do it, not their people. And, you know, I'm just thinking that, wow, I've, I've sort of arrived. This is what I've worked so hard for, for all these years. And, um, I happened to be in Manhattan on September 11, and the first plane flew right over my head. And um, we were there for some senior leadership meetings with Toys R Us, and we didn't hear the impact because we were in the elevator. And when we emerged on our floor, obviously it was in total chaos. And I don't have to tell you the details of that day, but I will tell you from my perspective, um, we you see what people are, are really made of in a crisis like that. Some people literally like crawled up in the fetal position under their desk or some people ran and, but there were a group of us, we, we got together and we prayed and um, you know, people were calling their families. And of course I called my mom cause I had no, no one else. Uh, and I was on the phone with my mom as you know, we were deciding, okay, we're going to go try to help and go toward the building. And my mom started sort of screaming and said, a plane hit the other tower. And I I remember saying, oh, mom, you're watching a replay. And she said, no, one's on fire and the plane hit the other one. Um, And the phone went dead, you know, right then. And so we knew, I mean, we knew right away that this was not an ordinary day. Um, and, you know, the next hour and 50 minutes, it's, it's crazy, just crazy. You know, we, a, a small group of us went toward the buildings and people were coming out and, um, you know, toward us and they're cut and they're bleeding and they're just in shock and they're out of breath. And so, you know, we're giving water and letting people call. The cell phones work sort of in and out. And you Sandra, know, just, had the buildings fell, fallen at that point where everybody just covered with dust and, okay. No, not yet. So, um, you know, we're, we're sort of still in, okay, people are coming out and, and, 
you know, and it wasn't just from the two buildings. It was a whole area. People were just running. I mean, literally just heading north. There were, you know, there were no cars, no trains. Um, so we did everything we could. And, um, and you know, the as, as that's happening, then, of course, we hear the rumble of the, the building falling. And, uh, you know, it's just, it was like out of a movie. I mean, you know. And Did you know just, what the rumble was at first? Did you think it was another? We didn't. We, yeah, we didn't. We thought it sounded like it was coming from underground. So, you know, and it happened so quickly that, you know, you sort of are thinking, oh, my goodness. I can remember one of my crazy thoughts was that, like, some subway um, station was collapsing underneath or, you know, another building next door was blowing up or, you know, some of the rubble. Because you have to remember, we were on the ground. We had not seen what everybody else in the world had seen. We couldn't see the buildings. We didn't see, you know, um, that sort of air view that a lot of people saw. We were at ground level. And so I, I... have things in you know in my head that I'll never forget you know people jumping out of buildings and seeing things on the ground and you know things you just you don't forget the rest of your life I had nightmares about for a long time but um, when you heard that rumble we couldn't see that it was the building falling but you knew that it was bad and we needed to get out of there and so it was and you have to remember there's people everywhere yet it was silent and so um it was it's this eerie thing that you know people just knew okay we have to run and so uh, we we took off and you know we headed north as fast as we could and we did not entirely outrun the concrete fog um, and, and you know when people say they call it dust it was not dust dust is a light coating this stuff had mass to it um, and so you're running and it's catching up with you and you know. Uh, we're we know that this is bad you know there have been fighter jets now flying overhead and we had heard little snippets on the ground that there were other planes and you know people saying terrorists and that sort of thing but you know god created us in such an amazing way that our brains are really designed to protect us from things that are so awful and so even things that i saw and heard um, I didn't really process until later because I think you're just you're just in survival mode. Um, and so, you know, we're we're now sort of trying to help each other and head north as fast as we can. And, you know, I have this moment that I've only recently in the last few months began to to verbalize and talk about. But um, we we're sort of, we all got separated. And so it's me and I'm, I'm, I, on my right is a guy who'd been selling hot dogs on the corner in New York, like on any other day. And he had like his little vest on with like the money pouch. And so it was very clear, you know, that's what he'd been doing. And then on my left was a guy who was probably a trader or something and his very expensive suit. And I remember when it all started, he was carrying a briefcase, but it was, um, but it was open and there was nothing in it, but he was still just carrying it. It was almost in shock. And, and we're sort of all stumbling and trying to help each other. And, and you know, as we sort of come out and, and, and duck into, a, you know, an alcove on the far north side of the fog, uh, I just had this moment of complete clarity. And I call it my, you know, God two by four moment where I looked around and I thought, you know what, two hours ago, the deal I was about to make and how many digits were on my paycheck. And what was on my business card that's now blowing somewhere down the street, um, those were the most important things. 
And now as I stand here, you know, all of us looked the same. You've seen the pictures where you're covered head to toe in the grayish um, covering and we all look the same. And I just had this moment where God said, this is what it will be like when you face me in eternity. Everybody looks the same to me. Your awards and your labels and your badges and all this stuff that you accumulate fall away in an instant mm-hmm. and you're all before me exactly the same. And I I just knew in that moment that I had to, to recalibrate my life because I was living for the wrong reasons. You know, I'd spent all those years trying to overcome my upbringing by adding layers and layers and layers and titles and, and this and that and stuff. And I look like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man walking around because I had so many layers on and all these masks. And, um, you know, it was just very clear that I needed to to reconfigure. So it, now um, you said that this took quite a while to really process. And it's been very recently where this is really uh You've had some clarity on this. Was it just peeling back all those layers and getting to the core of who who you are, or or what was yeah, that? Yeah, you know, um, yeah. I only recently started speaking about it. The mm-hmm. processing really happened in the the year or two, uh, probably two ish years after nine eleven. Um, I knew instantly that my life was broken and I needed to do something very differently. You know, I was the devil wears Prada, right? I was hard and tough and high expectations and unforgiving. I recently wrote an article called I Had No Idea um, about, you know, I was managing young people and young married couples and new mothers and all these sorts of things. And I, I had no idea. I would schedule meetings at 4.30 and I would you know, order dinner in and just expect people to stay. And I would schedule trips for people and, you know, I would pre-order at restaurants. And, you know, I, I just thought that's what you do to be successful. And I had no idea that not everybody wanted that. And not everybody was wired that way. And certainly that that's not God's calling. And so um, I, I wrote sort of this open-ended, I had no idea, apology. Um, and I've had a number of people that worked for me in those early years come back and now work for me in the new Sandra, sort of Miss Congeniality, um, mm-hmm. who, and we joke about it, you know, quite a bit. But, you know, I as I got my team out of the city and, you know, bribed a cab driver to drive us over the George Washington Bridge and we rented cars in New Jersey and you know, had to drive home to Orlando with uh, one of my team members. And the whole way home, she's talking to her husband and her, you know, her children. And, and you know, I'm talking to my mom because that's all I have. And my mom's lovely. Don't get me wrong. But, um, you know, I didn't have anybody else because I had accomplishments as my, you know, bedfellow, if you will. Um, and so uh, the loneliness was just overwhelming the loneliness was just, um, just engulfed me, you know, but I had a lot of responsibilities. So I continued to work, but, but my attitude was different. I opened myself up to be more authentic. I think as you think about the process after nine 11, you know, those, those layers started falling off, sort of like stickers that use, you know, lose their glue. And, um, you know, I didn't define myself through my job title and my accomplishments and my awards, but, you guys know that's not an overnight thing. That's a process. What and, were you starting to define yourself by? Oh, well, let's be clear. I defined myself through, you know, first of all, it was grades. 
and then it was jobs and then it was money and then it was awards and then it was how many press clippings and TV shows, right? And what did that um, transition into what you defined yourself by? So that, that transitioned into, in, the early, in that early, those early phases, it was more um, how I treated people mm-hmm. uh, and, and how, uh, how I helped people. I'd always been a fixer of situations, sort of the, the person the mafia brings in to fix things when they'd gone wrong, right? That was, was sort of me, and I was really good at it corporately. And so um, I started putting that focus on people and how I could help people and serve. And that was sort of in the beginning. Knew immediately that this was a divine, you know, calling that God was using an awful, awful thing that happened to the entire world, um, using it in my life individually to wake me up to changes. And so I, you know, I immediately started getting back in the word and, you know, just got on my face with him. And, uh, but it, you know, it took a while, it took about, gosh, I would say about 10 months for me really to get to a place where I, I had really processed all of it. And, you know, God is so good and he's so gracious. And, literally within weeks of me being like, okay, I, I get it. This is, this is not about um, me and it's not about accomplishments anymore. Um, and I, I really am lonely and I want to, I want to find someone that's, um, that's going to love me for my authentic self. So my theme sort of became authenticity. And instead of trying to be, you know, this person that I, that I wasn't, I could be with all these masks and labels and uniforms, but who, who, who was I really, you know, I was just this poor, hardworking kid from South Louisiana that, you know, loved people. And um, why try to hide that? And so the moment I let that guard down and started being who I really was, um, that's when I met my husband. And uh, it's a crazy story. He's the big brother of my best friend since 10th grade. He was at my high school graduation, my college graduation. She and I were college roommates. I mean, I knew everything about him. Um, but yet he was the older, he was three years older. He was the older, serious brother. And um, But we happened to have just God completely intervene and like 17 things happened that Jeff and I were visiting his sister and our trips overlapped by like 36 hours. And I hadn't seen him in eight years. And I walked in and was like, Hey, how you doing? And, um, we stayed up all that night talking, you know, like high school kids and giggling and, um, you know, and then the next night before, right before he left, we were, you know, did some smooching on the couch, like high school kids. And then when we were grown, we were grown adults. Right. And then he got on a plane and, went back to Dallas and, you know, I went back to my life the next, you know, that Monday and I thought, okay, this is, um, this is it. I mean, I knew right away. And so we had a long distance relationship for 14 months and got engaged and it was just wonderful because the very first thing we did, um, as a real date was go to church. And it was, you know, I always say, you know, he changed my life. He loved me unconditionally for the broken, poor, little insecure girl that I, you know, am on the inside. And he did not care at all about my job or my success or my salary. And, you know, it was, um, he didn't care either way, right? He was intimidated by it. 
but he also wasn't impressed by it. Um, you know, he just saw me for, for who I was. And, um, we got married, I was 36 years old and, uh, you know, that's sort of my, uh, my, this phase of, I'm still building my career. You know, I'm doing a dot-com startup. We grew up to a hundred million. Um, and, and I had Jenna at 38, went right back to work after a brief stint thinking I could maybe be a stay at home mom. And after six weeks was like, Oh my goodness, God did not give me the gifts to be a stay at home mom. Like I could not do that job. So, uh, I went right back to work and we've had the same nanny for 10 years, amazing young godly woman. And, uh, you know, I thought, okay, this is great. I can, I can have it all, uh, you know, walking with the Lord, um, you know, Jesus went from my head to my heart when I was pregnant with Jenna on Mother's Day. And I accepted the Lord um, at 37. And, you know, it was funny because you, you think, oh, I'm a Christian. I grew up in church. I know the Bible. Everything's great. Right. Um, and then you look at life and you go, huh. Why? I, I mean, it's you hear pastors say that 18 inches from the head to the heart. I literally know what that means, right? And so I was baptized on Mother's Day while I was uh, six months pregnant. I mean, it was just an amazing, amazing godly moment. And then I thought, okay, well, I got this, right? I've got this new life and everything's great. And um, I'm going to make sure that I, I have this wonderful family and I raise my kids in, in church and give them over to the Lord. And um, when Jenna was one, we got pregnant again and then we had the next two by four moment. And when I was 15 weeks pregnant, we found out on a Friday morning that our baby had a chromosome defect and could not live outside of the womb. And then that evening, our doctor called and I said, oh, you heard. And she said, yeah, that's not why I'm calling. I don't know how to say this, but you have full-blown cervical cancer. And so we found those two things out on the same day in January of 2007. And so um, God in that next six months just worked miracles in my life. You know, we don't have to go into the details, but um, the, you know, baby Kathleen did perish. And, uh, and, and so we went through that. And then I had one cancer surgery, one. And you have to understand, my Bible study group prayed over me. They anointed me with oil. I mean, they just poured into me. And, and Jeff and I just had such peace. And after one surgery, every cancer cell was gone from my body. So much mm. so that doctors said, we have no medical explanation for this. We don't, we don't, <laughs> don't know how this happened. And one of the doctors says, um, that's what they say when they know it's a God miracle. Um, you know what happened, though. I completely know what happened. I mean, he healed me and, you know, gave me this entire second chance. And so, you know, we then wanted to have more children and we couldn't. And we tried and we tried and we did fertility and we had three more miscarriages. And then I had another two by four moment where the fertility doctor says, Mr. and Mrs. Williamson, we don't recommend you spend any more emotional or financial resources trying to conceive your own baby. And uh, I said, well, you're not God. And he said, he's the only one that can help you now. And it was like, bing, the two by four. <laughs> and I said, well, that's where I should have been <laughs> the entire time I was here with you. So I went home and threw away all these little vials that had been, you know, injecting into my body, making myself crazy. And uh, I got on my face with the Lord. And I, for the next two months, asked him for forgiveness 
forgiveness that I had continued to ask for things when he had delivered me from so much evil and saved my soul from this sin and and this life I'd been living and saved my physical body from cancer and, you know, given me this beautiful child and this amazing husband. And I just, you know, I just praised him and asked for forgiveness. And, and, you know, within that third month, uh, thought, okay, something's going on. Now I've got the flu. And turns out, you can imagine, I was pregnant at 42 years old and had baby Jonah, who was perfect, at 42 with no intervention. And the doctors still to this day call him the miracle child. That's awesome. Uh, that that and, gave me chills as you've, you've told some of these stories, Sandra. It's crazy. I mean, I say it out loud and I don't even believe it. I'm like, I have to write all this down because, and, and part of it is, you know, different articles and blurbs here and there. But when I string them all together like this, I mean, I'm so humbled and I am so grateful. And I just know you know, I I have a purpose because why on earth would he give little old me so many chances, right? And so, you know, then he he also shows what a great sense of humor that he has because when Jonah was 15 months old and I was 43 and a half, I thought I was going into early menopause and I was pregnant again. And I had James at 44 years old. And so when people ask today, you know, oh, what are you doing to, you know, take care of yourself? I'm like, are you kidding? I have a little league practice, you know, and I'm coaching flag <laughs> football with my husband. And, you know, it's just an amazing, crazy season. But, you know, he just, again, just showed me and loved me and, you know, didn't hold it against me that I tried to do it myself, even though he just saved my life from cancer. And so, you know, I sort of then call that phase, uh, the, you know, the next phase of, okay, all right, because I still continue to build my career. At this point, I'm in the C-suite of a $3 billion publicly traded firm and, you know, continue to make other people lots of money. And, and I was in a situation where I'm pregnant with James and we get a new CEO and he started bringing his own people in. And I remember, I just prayed and prayed, God, what do I do? Because if, if I stay in this with this new CEO, I know then I'll be here another, you know, certain amount of time. And, um, and God just worked it all out. And I got a, a glorious package right off into the sunset. And I told him, I said, when we sign this, I, I need to leave in time to be in kindergarten to pick up Jenna by 3.30. I was determined. And so I picked Jenna up six months pregnant, the back of my car filled with, you know, pictures and boxes and whatever. And I pulled up to the kindergarten carpool line and she saw my car and she sort of like jumping up and down on the bench. And the teacher opened the door and she looked at me and she said, Mommy, did you leave your job to spend more time with me? And I said, yes, I did, baby. And that was spring uh, four years ago of 2011. Mm. Uh, and, and she got in the car and I said, okay, I am, I am not going to do this on other people's terms from now on. And I need to go figure out what is it? Why did God do all this and give me all these blessings and, and all these, you know, all these gifts. And so I then had the baby. I, I hung a shingle called Crawford Creative Consulting. Did not even put up a website here today, four years later, still don't have a website. And God has blessed me by bringing me clients and business and speaking opportunities and 
things all over the world. And it's sort of one of those things, it's like manna, right? It's like, okay, where's the revenue going to come from, you know, next quarter? And, and then people call and people refer and people come out of the woodwork. And it's, um, I had sort of this, this principle that, you know, I'm very, very clear of what my spiritual gifts are because I had, I invested that time that, that year, year and a half after leaving the C-suite and really figuring out, all right, God, what have you, you know, on the books for me to do? What did and you I, do to I, really get that understanding and clarity? Yeah, so I poured myself into, I, I read the Bob Buford Little Green halftime book in like, I don't know, like 16 hours one day, somebody gave it to me and said, you know, I think this is where you are. And as you know, the book is all about taking your first half of success and changing it up at halftime to have a second half of significance. And it was like that book had been written for me. And I just was like, oh my goodness, I've got to meet these people. And so some different people introduced me to different people over at halftime. And I went through the, the halftime institute and it's a two-day experience where, I mean, you just unpack all, you do all, all this self-assessment to determine what your spiritual gifts are, and you um, go through these led sessions where, you know, you're asking the Lord to, to really make it clear, and you're, you're working with these six to eight other people, and they're saying, hey, this is what I see for you, and you pour into scripture, and there's some amazing scripture that I unpacked. Um, you know, Ephesians 2.10, I, I, I talk about every single day to somebody that we are God's workmanship. He, we are a work of art that he created specifically, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared us in advance to do. And so you, you know, take that together with, you know, it's on 139, 13 through 16 that talks about I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, you know, created in my mother's womb and that all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And so I, I became very clear that God created me specifically from before time and that he created me with a specific to do list to do in his name. And he gave me specific gifts and skills and experiences, and he embraces me constantly. You know, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Nowhere. He is with me constantly. And that my, you know, job now is to bring the light of Jesus to as many people as will listen to me. And, and so that's what I've attempted to do now in this last four years, as I, you know, I read the book, The Power of Uniqueness, my Bill Hendricks, and I went through some, some stuff with him, Discover Your Design, and it, where you literally start then creating a filter of, okay, this is my giftedness, these are my skills, th th this is what I love doing. I would get up at five in the morning and do for free every day because it's in my spiritual gifts and, and it makes me tick. So now I know that's what it is and I know that God's giving me all this. And so I, I literally create, I have this list, it's called a filter <laughs> and and it every you know speaking gig, every job, every client, every person that asks me to mentor them, every church thing I get asked to do, I put it through that filter of, of giftedness and, and self-awareness. And I say, okay, does this fit the, you know, does this make it through the filter that God ordained for me in terms of gifts and experiences and what makes me tick and what gives me energy? And I learned to say no, which was very hard for me 
because of, of the focus I had, the, you know, my first half on accomplishment, you know, if somebody wanted me, of course, it's like, oh, yes, you know, the little secure person inside me still would say, oh, you want me, then yes, I'm there, I'll do it. And I learned over time the power of no and, and putting it through God's filter and, you know, starting to do things that had kingdom impact and instead of meeting with people and helping, you know, coach them on their five-year goals and their 10-year goals, I started talking about eternal goals. And you know what? I, I can help you over here and we can talk all day long at the speaking gig or this national sales meeting about how to make your numbers and how to be the best executive. And, you know, we can do all that and, and we'll do that because I believe God gifts us in the workplace. Um, and let's also talk over here about your spiritual well-being and your emotional well-being and your physical well-being. Um, because I was 25%. I was just focusing on that 25%. And so, you know, as we look at the last four years, I've done some amazing things and worked with some fabulous people. And here I am talking to you, right? That would have never happened if I was you know, in New York running a, running a firm and not taking a moment to even breathe. Yeah, you would have and, been the uh, different on the different podcast, uh, "The Devil Wears Prada," and how to be a great CEO. Yes, well, or, yeah, or or the one where you know people are throwing darts at. I don't know, maybe. Um, but you know, it was. It, I still now. Let me be clear. It is a daily walk, guys. It is a daily walk because I still was that self-sufficient, you know, accomplisher for more years than I've been, you know, clear on what my, what my new spiritual job is. And so, you know, I, um, I, it's still a daily walk. I love business. I'm very good at it. I, I do a lot of fabulous corporate things every single day and, and I love it. And I'm able to, in that context, share, you know, the light of Jesus with people and, and talk to them and, you know, running your business on godly principles and here's how you treat people and here's how you manage your employees and here's how you, you know, you take care of clients and all these things that you and I would know are, are biblical things, but that, you know, they don't realize in the moment if they're, they're not walking with the Lord. And, and then I've been able to work with some churches and some nonprofits and different ministries and missionaries helping them with projects. So using my corporate skills and education experience and filtering it through, you know, this new God knowledge and self-awareness and, and helping, you know, make, make a difference there. And then, you know, 18 months ago, I had the most incredible opportunity. Um, Bob Buford uh, had uh, me introduced to Diane Patterson, who Diane uh, had had a very successful corporate real estate career felt called after going through half time to write a book called Work, Love, Pray, and to start a ministry for professional Christian women called forwardwomen.org is the website. The brand is forward, the number four, W-O-R-D. And uh, I started about 18 months ago and partnering uh, with Diane, and we've created a robust digital footprint for, for the brand. And we have local groups in 23 cities now, and we're self-publishing books and study guides and bringing female entrepreneurs' products to market through our e-commerce platform. And 
using all of our corporate skills uh, to make an, an impact in people's lives. And, you know, I've, I've never felt more fulfilled and happier and love what I'm doing and, and still have lots of business in the corporate world. And, uh, you know, life is good. So blessed and, and get to meet people like you guys and, and <laughs> tell my story. Well, Sandra, you know, as we wrap up and I, your story was, there's so many people that can relate to different aspects of your story, your journey of, of just, you know, shifting your identity of one from just being rooted in the world to one of God and understanding who God created you to be and being a working woman in the marketplace. You know, as people have been listening to this, driving in their car or working out or taking a walk, what final thoughts would you, would you like to leave with them? You know, I would say we get so caught up in the little rocks of daily life, and I do it too every day. Um, you know, this client, this uh, deadline, this project, this board meeting, um, little league practice, flag football, dance recital. Because now I have three kids, right? So I'm a working mom with three kids, running a firm, and and running this nonprofit. And it's total chaos. And and the risk is that we get so caught up in the little rocks that we miss the whole point, which is the, you know, the big giant rocks of, of taking our walk with the Lord to the next level, impacting people's lives through, you know, the light of Jesus and, and, and helping people understand that, you know, this is finite. This time on earth, it, it will end no matter how many workouts you do and no matter um, how safely you drive, this time will end. And when that time ends, um, you know, I, I want to have left uh, an impact and a legacy that's not about how many billions of dollars I made people, but how many people's lives I impacted. And, and if you can do that and have that shift in thinking in your life, that's not about trophies and labels, and it's about lives and souls and individuals. Um, if, if I could influence one person to have that shift without going through the awful pain and situations that I did of four miscarriages and cancer and, and 9-11 and, you know, tough upbringing yucky college years you know if i could have someone just hear me and make that shift you know that's what it's all about uh i want to save people the two by four upside the head um because that hurts and if i can save them that pain and give them some inspiration that they make that shift in their life that's that's really that's my calling well i think that's such a great message to end on is just sharing with people that you know you can, as you listen to this, look at your life and and follow, you know, what Sandra's done and, and just other great examples that are in your life and around here to just live a life of impact and significance. And, you know, what I can hear in your voice, and I could tell that moment when you're talking about your your daughter was very emotional, but getting to this place that you didn't have before of just joy and peace, and now you're feeling that need for accomplishment in a very different way that's serving God, serving God's kingdom. And that's something that we can all do. And this was just such uh, a wonderful example of that. So thank you so much for sharing. Well, thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, I love what you're doing. And thank you so much for for your new story. And, um, you know, I'm just glad to be a part of it. If you'd like more information about Sandra, 
just go to our show notes at eternalleadership.com slash 047. And there we'll have links to her page on the forward website. That's forward with the number four. Her blog articles, her contact info, if you want to book her for speaking or for marketing consulting, all that and more, eternalleadership.com slash 047. If you're listening on your smartphone, tablet, or computer, just look for that link embedded in the summary of this MP3. For example, if you're listening on an iPhone, which 85% of our audience listens via an Apple device or through iTunes, just click on the logo of this episode. Or if you're looking at the episode list, click the little I on the right-hand side. If you're part of the other 15% and you consider yourself technologically challenged and would like to see where those links are located, just shoot me an email, steve at eternalleadership.com, and one of us on the team will assist you. Special thanks to Justin Jeffrey for his editing and production help on this episode. Next time on Eternal Leadership, author and speaker, John Garfield. When I finally gave myself permission to sort of be myself and follow my own heart's desires, what I found out was that I didn't really want to be a pastor. I just thought that was theologically, you know, the only option. And I I was sort of had this passion for business and investing and trading and that kind of stuff. And the feeling of freedom, it felt like I got saved again to be able to pursue my own heart's desires. And, And that is the simple message that we've been sharing ever since. We introduce you to John, his story, and we start to touch on two of his books, Releasing Kings and Desire to Destiny, Seven Keys to Your Marketplace Ministry. For John Ramstead, I'm Steve Ryder, and thank you for listening to Eternal Leadership. Eternal Leadership.